This podcast is a ministry of the First Baptist Church of Diana, Texas. If you're in East Texas, you can gather with us on Sundays at 10.15 a.m. You can find more episodes of our podcast on iTunes, Spotify, and on our website, www.fbcdiana.org. Thanks for listening. This morning we'll continue our study in the book of Deuteronomy, and Lord willing, I'll get through it before uh, the end of my life. <laughs> I'm just joking. We'll, I'll, I'll make leaps and bounds in this one. Uh, we won't go through as slowly as we would uh, like Acts or some of the other books in order to get through it. Uh, but I'll repeat some of the opening notes I made last time, and so bear with me. Uh, a couple of months ago we started this book. I'll repeat some of these openings uh, just, just to kind of refresh our memory. Uh, Deuteronomy is the fifth and final book of the Pentateuch or the Torah, the teaching, the first five books of the Bible. It summarizes and brings together the first four books and sets the standard going forward for uh, uh, how Israel will operate and how God will, will judge them. Uh, the main point of Deuteronomy is to prepare Israel for a decision. It's a decision that Yahweh is forcing in the plains of Moab. But this is not a one-time decision to follow Yahweh, but instead a day-by-day decision to continually and faithfully follow the God of their salvation. Like I mentioned last time, some claim in Christianity today that they have doubts whether the Old Testament is necessary or important, and others would argue that it has inherent value of Scripture but don't know what to do to it or don't know how to relate with it. And so as we go through the book of Deuteronomy and other Old Testament passages, uh, we at FBC hope to help us together understand the value of God's Word and how it can apply for us today. One of the things that is important for us uh, in the New Covenant is to understand that the New Covenant and the New Testament did not come out of nowhere, out of a vacuum. Instead, it is the continued movement of God in redemptive history to bring about His people for His possession. And so for us to learn the Old Testament is for us to learn our own heritage and the promises that God has been making and been making good on. One of the things I want us to remember is that salvation across all redemptive history has been consistent. To be justified or to be counted righteous before God throughout history has been by grace through faith, based on God's word and according to his sovereign decree. There's not a different... Uh, way to be saved in the Old Testament or in the Old Covenant than in the New. Also, the Bible as a whole is Christ-centric, not Israel-centric. And so we need to focus on what God is doing to bring about his ultimate plan to unite all things in heaven and in earth to himself. And though he uses a people, they are not the focus of Scripture. Finally, we see in the Old Testament that God has chosen an ethnic group, Israel, uh, to bring about his own purposes. And while they all do bear the signs of the covenant, we must realize that not all of national ethnic Israel had faith in God. This is something that is different about the Old Covenant compared to the New Covenant. The New Covenant signs of baptism and the Lord's Supper are withheld or reserved for those who have faith or who the covenant applies to. But in both covenants, it is God who regenerates dead souls. In the old covenant, God indwelt the tabernacle and the temple, whereas in the new covenant, his spirit dwells his people. Our passage today lists multiple places and people groups that are altogether unfamiliar to us today. 
uh, I've included a map in our bulletin. And if you'll, if you'll open that up and look at it, I'll help us walk through to try to orient us uh, the best I can to some of these places where they are and, and, uh, and what they may mean. This map is a map of the tribal allotments, the, the promised land that God gave to Israel and how it was divided up in the book of, of Deuteronomy and Joshua. Uh, kind of generally speaking, what I want to point out is that the bottom left-hand corner, there's this little tiny dot, and you may be able to read it, but it says Kadesh Barnea. And this is the, the milestone that we talked about in Deuteronomy 1, where God had brought them to the land of promise, and they sent in scouts and as the scouts went in, they spied out the land and they brought back a bad report and they did not believe in God. They did not trust his word. And so God judged that nation, that generation, and he sent them southward toward the Red Sea. The rest of the passage that we'll be talking about will be going up the right-hand side in this uh, manila or yellowish color. And so you'll see the, 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 the land there of Edom You'll see Moab, and then you'll see Ammon. And then far to the north in the green, uh, kind of written sideways, is Gilead and Bashan. And these are some of the places that, that as we go northward, Israel is going to be traveling along this road. Uh, and they're going to they're encamp just outside of Jericho, which is listed in the, in the light bluish color there, uh, opposite the River Jordan, where it says Benjamin. That's where the whole book of, of Deuteronomy is written. So to whatever value this is, to help you kind of get an idea of where in the world we're talking about, where this is, um, I just want to remind you that these are historical places. These are real events, and these are real people that God used and brought about. And so hopefully uh, hopefully that map helps clear up some of the fog of the, the onslaught of names and places that are going to come that are uh, altogether unfamiliar to us. With that, if you have God's, uh, God's Word open, would you stand as we read it together, as is our tradition? I, I will warn you, this will take me about ten minutes to read chapters two and three. So this is a tradition. If at some point you get uh, tired or you're unable to stand that long, please have a seat. Don't, uh, don't feel burdened. Uh, but I will, I will read it all to us. Uh, a couple of points. Where, where your copy of God's Word says the Lord, I will, I will be using the name that God gave His people to call Him Yahweh. And so as we go along, you'll, you'll notice that. Deuteronomy chapter 2. Then we turned and journeyed into the wilderness in the direction of the Red Sea, as Yahweh told me. And for many days we traveled around Mount Seir. Then Yahweh said to me, You've been traveling around this mountain country long enough. Turn northward and command the people you are about to pass through the territory of your brothers, the people of Esau, who live in Seir, and they will be afraid of you. So be very careful. Do not contend with them, for I will not give you any of their land. No, not so much for the sole of your foot to tread on, because I have given Mount Seir to Esau as a possession. You shall purchase food from them with money that you may eat. And you shall also buy water from them with money that you may drink. For Yahweh your God has blessed you in the work of your hands, and he knows you're going through this great wilderness these 40 years. Yahweh your God has been with you. You have lacked nothing. So we went on, away from our brothers, the people of Esau who live in Seir, away from the Arabah, road from Elath, 
and Ezion Geber. And we turned and went in the direction of the wilderness of Moab. And Yahweh said to me, Do not harass Moab or contend with them in battle, for I will not give you any of their land for a possession, because I have given R to the people of Lot for a possession. The Emim formerly lived there, a people great and many, and as tall as the Anakim. Like the Anakim, they also are counted as the Rephaim. But the Moabites call them Emim. The Horites also lived in Seir formerly, but the people of Esau dispossessed them and destroyed them before them and settled in their place as Israel did to the land of their possession, which Yahweh gave to them. Now rise up and go over the brook Zered. So we went over the brook Zered. And that time from our leaving Kadesh Barnea until we crossed the brook Zered was 38 years until the entire generation, that is the men of war, had perished from within the camp as Yahweh had sworn to them. For indeed, the hand of Yahweh was against them to destroy them from within the camp until they had perished. So as soon as all the men of war had perished and were dead from among the people, Yahweh said to me, Today you are to cross the border of Moab at Ar. And when you approach the territory of the people of Ammon, do not harass them or contend with them. For I will not give you any of the land of the people of Ammon as a possession, because I have given it to the sons of Lot for a possession. It is also counted as the land of Rephaim. Rephaim formerly lived there, but the Ammonites call them Zamzumim, a people great and many and as tall as the Anakim. But Yahweh destroyed them before the Ammonites, and they dispossessed them and settled in their place, as he did for the people of Esau who lived in Seir when he destroyed the Horites before them, and they dispossessed them and settled in their place, even to this day. As for the Avim, who live in the villages as far as Gaza, the Kaftorim, who were from Kaftor, destroyed them and settled in their place. Rise up, set out on your journey, and go over the valley of Arnon. Behold, I have given you into your hand Sihon, the Amorite king of Heshbon, and his land. Begin to take possession and contend with him in battle. This day I will begin to put the dread and fear of you on the people's who are under the whole heaven, who shall hear the report of you and shall tremble and be in anguish because of you. So I sent messengers from the wilderness of Kedemoth to Sihon, the king of Heshbon, with words of peace, saying, Let me pass through your land. I will go only by the road. I will turn aside neither to the right nor to the left. You shall sell me food for money that I may eat and give me water for money that I may drink. Only let me pass through on foot, as the sons of Esau, who live in Seir, and the Moabites, who live in Ar, did for me, until I go over the Jordan into the land Yahweh, our God, is giving us. But Sihon, the king of Heshbon, would not let us pass by him. For Yahweh, your God, hardened his spirit and made his heart obstinate, that he might give him into your hand, as he is this day. And Yahweh said to me, Behold, I have begun to give Sihon and his land over to you. Begin to to take possession, that you may occupy his land. Then Sihon came out against us, he and all his people, to battle at Jahaz. And Yahweh our God gave him over to us, and we defeated him and his sons and all his people. And we captured all his cities at that time, and devoted to destruction every city, men, women, and children. We left no survivors. Only the livestock we took as spoil for ourselves with the plunder of the cities that we captured. 
from Aroer, which is on the edge of the valley of Arnon, and from the city that is in the valley, as far as Gilead, there was not a city too high for us. Yahweh our God gave all into our hands. Only the lands of the sons of Ammon you did not draw near, that is, to all the banks of the river Jabbok, and the cities in the hill country, whatever Yahweh our God had forbidden us. Then we turned and went up to the va- up the way to Bashan, and Og, the king of Bashan, came out against us, he and all his people, to battle at Edrei. But Yahweh said to me, Do not fear him, for I have given him and all his peoples and his land into your hand, and you shall do to him as you did to Sihon, the king of the Amorites, who live in Heshbon. So Yahweh our God gave into our hand Og also, the king of Bashan, and all his people, and we struck him down until he had no survivor left. And we took all his cities at that time. There was not a city that we did not take from them. Sixty cities, the whole region of Argob, the kingdom of Og of Bashan. And all these were cities fortified with high walls, gates, and bars, besides many unwalled villages. And we devoted them to destruction, as we did to Sihon, the king of Heshbon, devoting to destruction every city, men, women, and children. But all the livestock and the spoil of the cities we took as plunder. So we took the land at that time out of the hand of the two kings of the Amorites who were beyond the Jordan, from the valley of Arnon to, the Mount, to, to Mount Hermon. The Sidonians call Hermon Sirion, while the Amorites call it Sinir. All the cities of the tableland and all Gilead and all Bashan, as far as Selica and Edrei, cities of the kingdom of Og in Bashan. For only Og, the king of Bashan, was left of the remnant of the Rephaim. Behold, his coffin was of iron. Is it not in Rabbah of the Ammonites, thirteen and a half feet long and six feet wide? When we took possession of the land at that time, I gave the, to the Reubenites and the Gadites the territory beginning at Aurora, which is on the edge of the valley of Arnon, and half the hill country of Gilead with its cities. The rest of Gilead and all Bashan, the kingdom of Og, that is, all the region of Argob, I gave to the half-tribe of Manasseh, all that portion of Bashan, is called the land of Rephaim. Jair, the Manassite, took all the region of Argob, that is, Bashan, as far as the border of the Gersherites and Mehekites, and called the villages after his own name, Havath Jair, as it is to this day. To Maker, I gave Gilead, and the Reubenites and the, and the Gadites I gave from the territory from Gilead as far as from the valley of Arnon, with the middle of the valley as a border, as far as the river Jabuk, the border of the Ammonites. The Arabah also with the Jordan is the border from Kinnereth as far as the Sea of Arabah, the Salt Sea, under the slopes of Pisgah on the east. And I commanded you at that time, saying, Yahweh your God has given you this land to possess. All your men of valor shall cross over armed before your brothers, the people of Israel. Only your wives and your little ones and your livestock, I know you have much livestock, shall remain in the cities that I have given you until Yahweh gives rest to your brothers as to you. And they also occupy the land that Yahweh your God gives to them beyond the Jordan. Then each of you may return to his possession, which I have given you. And I commanded Joshua at that time, Your eyes have seen that all Yahweh your God has done to these two kings. So will Yahweh do to all the kingdoms into which you are crossing. You shall not fear them, for it is Yahweh your God who fights for you. And I pleaded with Yahweh at that time, saying, O Lord God, You have only begun to show your servant your greatness and your mighty hand. For what God is there in heaven or on earth who can do such works and mighty acts as yours? Please 
Let me go over and see the good land beyond the Jordan, that good hill country in Lebanon. But Yahweh was angry with me because of you. It would not listen to me. And Yahweh said to me, Enough from you. Do not speak to me of this matter again. Go up to the top of Pisgah and lift your eyes westward and northward and southward and eastward and look at it with your eyes. For you shall not go over this Jordan, but charge Joshua and encourage and strengthen him. For he shall go over at the head of this people and he shall put them in possession of the land you shall see. So we remained in the valley opposite Beth Peor. Thank you, God, for your word. You can now be seated. Well, what I want us to see in this passage is, I believe, nope, the main point may not have made it. What I want you to see is the main point of of this whole passage is that God has raised a new generation to live by faith, led by God's man into the promised land. And so let's start with, with that very thing. Let's look at this new generation. The initial generation of Israel that was brought with God's mighty hand out of Egypt, yet refused to trust him or take him at his word, their sin was one of unbelief. And that generation was subsequently judged as God refused to make good on his promises to an unbelieving people. In chapter 2, the first three verses in 14 through 16, we see the passing of this unbelieving generation, one that, one that wandered around the desert for 38 years. In 2.15 it says, For indeed the hand of Yahweh was against them to destroy them from within the camp until they had perished. Pay attention. The text says that Yahweh himself destroyed this unbelieving, unrepentant, rebelling people. Psalm 95 is a song of praise to God because He is our salvation. Yet Psalm 95 speaks of God loathing this generation due to their unbelief. Therefore, they did not enter His rest. They were removed from among God's people. In Hebrews 3 and 4, it quotes Psalm 95. And it warns those in our own day who have heard the promises of God, of His promises, provision for our rest that if they persist in unbelief and refuse to repent and and trust in the savior that god has provided then judgment is certain paul warns a very divisive factious and immature corinthian church that we should learn from the idolatry of this generation and repent ourselves from unbelief and evil desires that we should trust in christ and live by faith as they were called to do Or the implication is, as they perished, so shall we. It is not merely in the hearing of God's word, but it is in the doing, the repenting, and the believing. And so we have to ask, were God's plans thwarted? Were they stalled by their rebellion? And not at all. Amid the unbelief and rebellion towards God by this first generation of Israel... God was raising up a new generation. God's providential plans will come to pass regardless of what our opposition may come. Israel had heard the report from the scouts, and they accused, them of, they accused God of bringing them to a dangerous land where they would die and their wives and children would fall prey. Yet in true irony, God is bringing this second generation, these children, to make conquest and occupy the land of promise. God's plans will not be thwarted by your disobedience. 
He will bring about His ends. Something that did struck me as I, as I read through this passage over and over in, in preparation to preach through it was, you know, we, we know that God has promised a land for His people and He's moving them towards that. But, but as they go, they can only have this land and not that land. Um, in in 2.5, uh, as Israel tra- travels towards the plains of Moab on the south part of that map there, God instructs them concerning the land of Edom, the descendants of, of Esau. Do not contend with them, for Yahweh will not give you any of their land, not so much as for the sole of the foot to tread on, because Yahweh has given Mount Seir to Esau as a possession. And then again, as he instructed Israel uh, concerning the land of Moab and and Ammon, as you move further north, the descendants of Lot through his oldest and younger daughter. It says in 2.9, And Yahweh said to me, Do not harass Moab or contend with them in battle, for I will not give you any of their land for a possession, because I have given R to the people of Lot for a possession. In 2.19, When you approach the territory of the people of Ammon, do not harass or contend with them, for I will not give you any of their land as a possession, because I have given it to the sons of Lot for a possession. Wow, God cares about the borders of peoples? Yahweh, the God of the Bible, is not just the one who sets the boundaries of the seas and the heavens, but He is the one who determines what land people groups may have and no more. Where you were born and into what circumstances. What time in human history in which you live and how many days you were allotted. Your skills, your abilities, your gender, and your whole identity were formed by God. The God of the Bible is providential over all that may come to pass. And He does not seek our counsel. And He does not accept our excuses for unbelief or rebellion. As this new generation of Israel moves toward the promised land, God is fulfilling His promise to Abraham. The text that that we opened up with this morning, that God would bless those that bless Abraham and his people and curse those that cursed Abraham and his people. We see that come to pass. As God brings Israel through, through Edom and Moab and Ammon, those people do not contend with Israel. And so they are spared. And yet those who come and, and seek to harm or to battle against Israel, God crushes them. What's interesting is that Psalm 83 later lists these people who at this time don't contend with Israel. It lists them as, as, as utter enemies to God and to His people. And in this psalm, the psalmist is call, calling for God's judgment upon these people. And so what we can see is, is that God is setting His people, Israel, in a place surrounded by enemies. And He is their protection. He is their providential caretaker. And so He has done with His people throughout all generations since then. The church today is not set apart in some safe place. We live in a land of danger. And God is our providential caretaker. And His church will prevail because He will make it so. The next thing I want to see is this second generation is called to live by faith. God has raised a generation within Israel, and, this, and God is now setting before them the same choice that they had. To live by faith in His place, or to die in unbelief 
and rebellion in the wilderness like their fathers. God has promised a land for Israel's possession, but they must get it through obedience and force. And so what we see here is that God is providential. He is sovereign. And yet, humans have responsibility, and they work together. God promised Moses and Israel that he would fight for them. Yahweh is not sending Israel on this conquest alone. This is a group of people who are slaves in Egypt. They are not battle-hardened warriors ready to go and make conquest and war. And so God will fight for them. In Exodus 23 through 28, I'll I'll read a, a subsection of that. It says, Behold, I send an angel before you to guard you on the way and to bring you to the place that I have prepared. Pay careful attention to him and obey his voice. Do not rebel against him, for he will not pardon your transgression, for my name is in him. But if you carefully obey his voice and do all that I say, then I will be an enemy to your enemies and an adversary to your adversaries. I will send my terror before you and will throw into confusion all the people against whom you shall come, and I will make your enemies turn their backs to you. And I will send hornets before you, and I will drive these peoples out. God begins making good on this promise as they approach Jahaz. As the king of Sihon comes to make war, followed by the king of Og and Bashan. In Deuteronomy 2.25, we read, This day I will begin to put the dread and fear of you on the peoples who are under the whole heaven, and you shall hear, and they, they shall hear the report of you, and shall tremble and be in anguish because of you. And Yahweh says to Moses, Behold, I have begun to give Sihon and his land over to you. Begin to take possession of it, that you may occupy his land. And then in 3.2, Yahweh says to Moses, Do not fear Og, for I have given him and all his people in his land into your hand. God promised that he would go before his people, that he would fight for for them, that he would clear the way, that he would be in their midst. And God is showing that he is trustworthy, that his word is honest, that he is honest. And that the protecting, endearing words that he has spoken to Moses and to Israel are true. And his word to this day continues to be true truth. The God of the Bible is trustworthy. In chapter 2, verses 1 through 24, and then, and then in chapter 3, the, the first section there, 1 through 13, Moses describes these battles against King Sihon and King Og. Here we see... Israel, the second generation, acting in obedient faith, following the very commands of Yahweh. And I'll read those portions again. But Sihon, the king of Heshbon, would not let us pass by him, for Yahweh had hardened his spirit and made his heart obstinate, that he might give him into your hand, as he is this day. And Yahweh said to me, Behold, I have begun to give Sihon and his land over to you. Take possession of it, that you may occupy his land. Then Sihon came out against us, he and all his people to battle at Jehaz. And Yahweh our God gave him over to us, and we defeated him and his sons and his people. And we captured all his cities at that time and devoted to destruction every city, men, women, and children. We left no survivors. Then in chapter 3, speaking of the battle against King Og, then we turned and went up to the way of Bashan, and Og, the king of Bashan, came out against us he and all his people, to battle at Edrei. 
But Yahweh said to me, Do not fear him, for I have given him and all his people and his land into your hand. And you shall do to him as you did to Sihon, king of the Amorites, who lived at Heshbon. So Yahweh our God gave into our hand Og also, the king of Bashan, and all his people, and we struck them down until we had no survivor left. And we have devoted them to destruction as we did to Sihon, king of Heshbon, devoting to destruction every city, men, women, and children. We're left with a very uncomfortable scene here. God has commanded Israel to utterly destroy these people groups, men, women, and children. And Israel is commended for their obedient faith. We must remember that Israel is not better than these people. They're not more righteous. They're not stronger. They're not more numerous. And they're certainly not more deserving of God's blessings in any way. Yet God has decided to set His fatherly love and affection upon them and to use them to bring about a people for His own possession. Twice from Sinai to, uh, to where they are now here in the, in the plains of Moab, twice God has told Moses that He would wipe Israel out and restart the promises that He had given to Abraham with Moses Himself. And yet we see Moses intercede on behalf of the people. What we can see is that Israel is not a deserving people. They are not a better people. They are not righteous and holy and deserving. Israel is a theocracy. God is their king, and they are following a divine command. This conquest is unique in the wars of men across human history. This text marks a clear way that God was using Israel to make war. This was a divine command. But, but still, that doesn't comfort or soothe our souls or our minds. At some level, this may seem inconsistent or contrary to our understanding of God's character and nature. Recall, as we studied through Exodus, there were numerous laws that God had given in Israel to protect the foreigner, the widow, the orphan, and the poor among them so that Israel would be a beacon of righteousness to the surrounding nations and bring glory to God for their righteous laws. In Genesis 15, God makes a covenant with Abraham in the land of Canaan, this land that they're making conquest on on now and will continue to do in Joshua. God promised Abraham that the land would be his. However... Canaan would not be given to Abraham's future people until after they had been foreigners in a land for 400 years. Why? Why the wait? Why would, why would Abraham's offspring have to wait for this land? Well, it tells us because the iniquity of their Amorites was not yet complete. What we see is that God had given the people of Canaan 400 years to repent. Yet how does God describe these people? We see in Leviticus 18, God describes both those in Egypt and in Canaan as people who committed abominations or repulsive sins before God. Things of idolatry and sexual immorality. And he lists them. And we won't go in great detail, but just skip over the surface here. Incest, adultery, bestiality, homosexuality, and child sacrifices. And God warns Israel in Leviticus 18 that the land itself will vomit Israel out as well as it will the people of Canaan 
if they commit these acts, these or the foreigners who are, who are to live among the people of Israel. And so what we see is that God had given time. He had allowed 400 years of mercy and this people had not repented. Here we are forced to recognize that God is holy and humanity is wicked. And though God extends patient mercy for a time and withholds His judgment, ultimately God does bring judgment. And it is final. And He does not seek our counsel. If you think God completely annihilating the wicked from the earth is unfair, then you, un- then you misunderstand the absolute holiness of God and His righteous indignation and wrath that burns against the wicked and against sin. And it speaks to our own desire to minimize our sin and to pretend like it's not a big deal. Passages like this thrust the justice and holiness of God to the forefront and remind us that we are not safe as sinners before a God like this. This is also not the first time God has brought judgment upon whole people groups and consumed them. Jesus says in Matthew 25 that the people at the time of the flood were eating and drinking and marrying and living merry lives. And then suddenly, God's judgment came. God's judgment came upon Egypt. Here in the book of Deuteronomy and and later in Joshua in the the conquest of Canaan, Canaan, God's judgment falls. Israel itself is later conquered and taken into captivity. And in AD 70, the temple itself in Jerusalem was utterly destroyed. And that generation saw no stone of the temple left unturned. Let us remember that it is God who destroys the wicked, who requires that sin everywhere be punished. And that this God sent His own Son to be the new representative for humanity, to live out the character and nature of God perfectly. And this Jesus was crucified on that cross as God's righteous indignation towards, towards sin and the sin of His people was exhausted upon our Savior. So how can we know that we can stand confident before God knowing that we have sinned? Because God's justice has been satisfied in the pouring out of His wrath on the person of Jesus. So it was not just people groups in times past that have bore God's judgment, but God the Son Himself bore the judgment that we deserve. But for those who persist in sin and refuse to trust in Christ, the ultimate and final judgment of God is coming. When Christ returns, He will return to judge the living and the dead, as we recite in the Apostles' Creed. And no one will be able to to hide or to find refuge apart from Christ. And that day, just like the flood, just like Egypt, just like this time in Canaan, and times later, will come like a thief in the night, when no one expects it. Finally, with respect to this scene of Israel battling in a land where there were giants, uh, it, it pointed out the Rephaim, the Anakim, the Emim, and the Zamzumim. 
This was the primary reason why the first generation withered and disbelieved God. They were more afraid of these giants than the maker of heaven and earth. And they accused God of taking them to a place to be killed where their wives and children would be left defenseless. Yet it is the children that have just defeated Og, king of Bashan, whose coffin was 13 and a half feet long and 6 feet wide. God is providential over any opposition that may come. Regardless of the circumstances, we are called to live faithfully according to the word of God. Not according to what our eye sees, but according to what the word of God says. Next, let us look and see that in this passage, uh, God is pointing us to not only raising up a generation that is living by faith, but also that will be led by God's man into the land that he will provide, the promised land. We see here that Moses so eagerly wants to lead the people into the promised land and to experience those victories with Israel, that this time, instead of interceding for the people, he intercedes for himself. And yet God's punishment for Moses' sin at Meribah will keep him from entering into the promised land. And this is a heartbreaking reminder that when God gives instructions, uh, we are to obey them. As these historical reminders end, God instructs Moses to provide Joshua with strength and courage. As the God-appointed leader or spokesman for Israel will pass from Moses to Joshua. This refrain of strength and courage will continue in the book of Joshua as Yahweh himself instructs Joshua to be strong and courageous. But this strength and courage is not just in the battles that are to come and against the remaining inhabitants of Canaan. But this strength and courage is to follow the law with intentional precision while constantly being reminded of God's word by thinking about it day and night. And doing this as, the, as God's appointed leader in front of all Israel, leading the people. God himself provides Joshua with the ultimate strength and encouragement just before the conquest of, of Canaan. We see in Joshua chapter 5, in verses 13 through 15, it says that when Joshua was by Jericho, he lifted up his eyes and looked, and behold, a man was standing before him, with his drawn sword in his hand. And Joshua went to him and said, Are you for us, or are you for our adversaries? And he said, No, but I am the commander of the army of the Lord. Now I have come. And Joshua fell on his face on, to the earth and worshipped and said to him, What does my Lord say to his servant? And the commander of the Lord's army said to Joshua, Take off your sandals from your feet. For the place where you're standing is holy. And Joshua did so. The Lord of hosts, the commander of the armies of heavens, had come to fight for his people. And that is our eager anticipation as well. In the opening five verses, we are told that Deuteronomy is a record of the words that Moses spoke to the assembly of the second generation of Israel from Egypt. As they were gathered opposite the land of promise just beyond the River Jordan, in the land of Moab, the land of decision. These three chapters provide an abbreviated account of the journey. But if, if you know about the journey, what we've recounted here in, in Deuteronomy 1-3 through 3 has been focused 
primarily on the land and on the leader. But if you go back and read in Numbers, there's all kinds of crazy things that are happening. There's the bronze serpent, the striking of the rock. There's, there's uh, the, the rebellion at Korah. There's all these things that are happening. But here in Deuteronomy, what we're focused on is the land and the leader. In Deuteronomy 3, 14 through 20 there, it discusses the allotment of land to the tribes of Reuben, Gad, and Manasseh as an inheritance. And after the faithfulness of Israel in defeating the peoples of the two kings of Sihon and Og, these three chapters are highlighting the main point of Deuteronomy, which is to prepare Israel for decision. A decision that Yahweh is forcing at Moab. But not a one-time decision to follow Yahweh but instead a day-by-day decision to continually and faithfully follow the God of their salvation. As he says in Deuteronomy 30, I call heaven and earth to witness against you today that I, Yahweh, have set before you life and death, blessing and curse. Therefore, choose life that you and your offspring may live, loving Yahweh, your God, obeying his voice and holding fast to him. For he is your life and length of days that you may dwell in the land that Yahweh swore to your fathers, to Abraham, to Isaac, and to Jacob to give to them. The focus on the land and the leader is to remind us that we don't get God's blessing apart from obedience to him. We don't get to enjoy the promises that he makes while living in rebellion and unbelief towards him. And again, I want to point to, as the New Testament points to this first generation many times, look at the example that God made of them. If you persist in unbelief, in rejection of the Savior that God has provided, if you persist in rebellion and sin, judgment is coming. From this passage, I want us to see that God has raised a new generation to live by faith, led by God's man into the promised land. And the same call is for us today, that we should repent and believe, trust in this Savior that God has provided, to live and walk by faith. And we understand that we will not live perfectly, but we are called to live faithfully. And as we confess our sins together, This should be the norm. We should be a repenting and a confessing people, pursuing the holiness and righteousness of God and admitting our faults to ourselves, to our family, and to those who see us sin and continually pointing them to the grace that is available in the Lord Jesus Christ while it is still available. Praise God for His Word. Will you go with me in prayer? We trust that this message edified the listener and glorified the God who shows love and mercy to sinners in the person and work of Jesus Christ, His Son. Would you take a moment to leave a positive rating for us on your podcast app? You'll be helping others find this episode and more like it. If you'd like more information about First Baptist Diana, then please visit our website, www.fbcdiana.org.